Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Black in Boston and Beyond, a podcast of the Trotter Institute of UMass Boston. I'm Hetty B. Williams, your host. Today on Black in Boston, Boston and Beyond, we have Dr. Zebulon Vance Maletsky, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Stony Brook University and author of the recent book, Before Bussing, A History of Boston's Long Black Freedom Struggle. Welcome to the show, Professor. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So glad to be here. I like I like that opening music. It's very, very smooth. <laughs> Thanks. Well, Zeb and I, we go back a long time, back in the day when he was a grad student. So this is, <laughs> you know, true. I'm glad we get back together on this. And I know you've been working on this book for a while mm-hmm. and very important looking at the Black freedom struggle in Boston, which is our focus today before busing. And but before we get into discussion of the book, tell us a little bit about your teaching and research background. Sure. Yep. Since those earlier days, and in ways because of some of those different experiences, uh, probably have a kind of a, a good sampling in terms of my teaching background from a, a lot of different styles, I guess you could say. Certainly influenced greatly by, as we all are, mentors and, t- and my own teachers and and professors. But um, but yeah, as I observe it today, my teaching sort of approach, like a lot of everybody who I studied with, and pretty results oriented in the sense that I tried to like, I guess, get students to the point where they're ready and able to kind of succeed academically, but also have like some sense about the world and justice and how these things work in practice since they have to be the ones that take it out into the world. And research practices, you know, there's no escaping the the hard work of the archives. (laughs) Yeah, where a lot of us are good speakers and stuff, but there's no substitute for the firsthand experience one gleans from in the archive as an author, but as a thinker because you're having to filter through your own brain these things to come up with, okay, I think this is what happened based on the evidence. It's never 100% science, but but that's, yeah, so, the, you know, combining those two things is uh, key. It's been critical to doing that. Yeah, and I think a lot of the oral history stuff, because I know your work, a lot of what you do is public-facing. You're very much engaged in the community, in the Boston area community as someone from the region, I guess they'll call me a carpet bagger because I'm from New Jersey, moving <laughs> to Boston, <laughs> which is fair. I mean, I'm, getting, I'm trying to get immersed in the story of Boston. So I definitely respect your work and the sort of community facing work that you've done. And it shows in this book, too. Also, UMass Amherst, right? Yeah, that's right. Yep, yep. Got that background. Kept it in Massachusetts. Gotta represent. <laughs> Gotta represent UMass. Yeah. So how did you decide that you wanted to be a college professor? And it also connects to the question about history, too. You know, when you were an undergrad, did you say, hey, you know, I'm going to go do these four years and then I'm going to do another six because I want to really be in school for what, 10 years or whatever it is. You know, (laughs) journeys are different for everybody. But when did you get that spark that you knew, hey, I'm going to research and write and teach at the college level? Yes, funny. I was just telling this story because, you know, we classes started yesterday. It really goes back for me to mentors and my own 
professors and just people who like really took pity on me. I think <laughs> like, oh, no. they said, you know, no, no, this, this guy needs, you know, some guidance about things. And which I appreciate one uh, who I think of just a suggestion to take up black studies course, just mm-hmm. that handoff, you know, where someone said, you should consider taking black studies, both because you're my background, be a way to learn more about the history and my own heritage, but also because I guess he just thought I would like it. And I did. I loved it because I always liked history. always liked studying history, even in high school. And the combination of studying history with the, the personal part and the pride and the hope of learning about the history of one's ancestors and their accomplishments and then seeing where that could possibly go in the future. That's what hooked me in. And I never really had a plan exactly to tell you the truth, but I do remember having a discussion. Once I started thinking about being a professor, going to graduate school, I had a discussion with somebody who I also consider a mentor and who I trusted. And I said, I got a dilemma before me. You know, I could either go I'm either going to go into African-American studies program. At that time, there weren't that many PhDs in African-American studies. It was a kind of a new experiment, new project, or go the history route. And, you know, the advice that was given was interesting because he suggested you should probably do history. He said that because of the stigma against African-American people in the country, that the studies thereof, studies of African-American people, that that is to say the degree itself would also be stigmatized somehow <laughs> and worth not as worthy in the academy. And I listened to that advice and I chose to do African-American studies. And boy, was he wrong. You know, I have mad, a lot of respect for him, but nobody knew back then because like I said, there was only about two or three PhDs in African-American studies. It was still a new idea right. and therefore untried. So it was a bit of a, a roll of the dice, I suppose. But for me, there was no other decision that was, it, it, it was satisfying intellectually, but also personally in terms of the heritage, the connection that I felt to what I was learning. That was it. I was hooked after that. I didn't really have much else I ever wanted to do. (laughs) Yeah, you bring up a lot of important points that I always like to talk about. Mentoring, the encounter with just a great professor in a particular class, because we have a lot of grad students and undergrad that listen to the show. And I would say, you know, any students listening, you may go into college as undergrad and not have a major and, and not have a plan, right? But you may encounter a great professor who mentors you and supports you along the way. And that might help you make the decision about what to major in. And that continues. That mentoring really does continue throughout your life, you know, beyond the college campus. So I think appreciate those uh, really good points. Talk to us some more about why study history, and then we'll turn directly to your book. Yeah. You know, for me, that was the field that that helped to provide the most answers for what I was seeking, which was not in and of itself just a knowledge about history, but the larger questions of why do we have this thing called racism, this sort of plague, this like, and seems to be a social issue that no one can seem to solve, kind of, you know, almost in the category of the unsolvable, like we'll never be able to tackle that. And, but I was looking for a way, uh, maybe because of my own personal experience, and my own journey, I suppose. But I was looking for those kinds of answers. Like, you know, how did we get into the situation that we're in? When you watch and observe how race plays out on a social kind of level, day to day, in our communities, in institutions, in classrooms, there's a lot of unpredictability involved in what the outcomes are going to be 
And yet some things can be predicted because, again, of the knowledge of history. Those who don't learn from their history are doomed to repeat it. If we don't see how these things have manifested and played out before, not only will we doomed to repeat it, but we also need perspective on our always need perspective especially these days <laughs> my goodness yes the perspective Everything on our, happening yeah and our current moment has never been more important just for day-to-day survival and yeah i love it i think i sampled too i sampled a couple of majors actually originally an english major and i jumped around considered sociology and actually in the end ironically i, I majored in political science i didn't even Oh, okay. At the undergrad. At the undergrad level, yeah. At the time, that was the field that was answering the questions that I needed knowledge about the most at that time. But in the end, it comes back to to history. I think it's something comforting to know that some of the things that are happening now, as confusing as they may seem, do have antecedents and they do have answers, therefore some answers possibly to how to solve things going on today. And I think that's more exciting than any other field. I would agree. (laughs) I have to agree with you on that. I think I also think political science and history, there is an overlap and interrelationship, at least I think how political science was once, I guess, taught. It's very become very quantitative, I think, more recently Mm -hmm. in terms of what political scientists are up to these days. But let's turn directly to your book, Before Bussing, A History of Boston's Long Black Freedom Struggle, and lay out the argument for us, the premise and the argument of your of this book before busing that focuses on Boston. Yeah, and myself as the author of the book made the several arguments being made here that I was attempting to make. And I guess the overarching argument and it's multi-layered for sure, but part of it is that much like American history that often sort of excises and and has a way of sidelining key parts of its own history that involves Black people. I think that because of the sort of power of race, not only in a day-to-day sense, but in the historiography and also in a narrative of, of any place, there has been efforts to distort and, and even completely erase key parts of the story. And much like how we suffer... Uh, I think in this country, because we create these sort of myths, right? And if you're following the myths, then you're just kind of out of sync because it's just that. It's a myth, right? It's something that feels great, but ignores select parts of the story. So therefore, we don't have the full story. And I find more often than not, Black people are at the heart of those their story is at the heart of that effort to distort and erase. And I can't find... You couldn't think of any more stronger example than that, than the city of, than of, of Boston's history, specifically and especially with regard to the years of school desegregation. There has been just a, a very one-sided narrative that completely wrote out the contributions, the work and labor and organizing successes of a somewhat smaller Black community than a lot of other cities in the Northeast, but very hardworking and very dedicated and having actually been successful in changing the city like completely, right? Mm. Now, when nobody knows that narrative, that's not how it's told. There's been a a more successful narrative that erased that history. And kind of when Black folks are mentioned in the recounting of the years of 
busing or school desegregation, it's not as a successful, you know, civil rights movement that transformed the city of Boston from this sort of very kind of specific northern style segregation uh, and all that goes with that segregated neighborhood, segregated schooling, and the inequality that segregation creates, separate but equals un- inherently unequal, that set of truths rings rings completely true in Boston. So so what you get is an incomplete narrative. And that's sort of maybe my naive kind of approach that the good people of the city of Boston simply lack the narrative. They lack the full story. They don't know that this group of 14 black families essentially banded together and brought suit in the city of Boston and won their lawsuit, which much like Brown versus Board of Education, won the lawsuit that breaks the back of this Jim Crow practice in the city of Boston, and thereby freeing the city from that kind of legacy and one that is embraced really more today, although there are still problems, but of one that's a lot more open. I mean, it's just literally, if you grew up like in the time that I grew up in Boston, there were just parts of the city that black people simply could not go to, or they could mm-hmm. go during the day because of work, but they couldn't be there, say, like after dark without any kind of you know, violence happening. I mean, this was just constant. There's real regimented lines, rigid lines in Boston like that of crossing, taking one's life into your own hands and stuff like that. And so that part, so that's the narrative that could, that, that's the argument that the book is making basically that simply with a longer view of that longer history and what led up to it. And the black struggle in Boston, just shining a light on it completely, is the missing piece to the whole conversation about race in Boston that's happening today. Good points here about expanding the geographic and chronological parameters of the black freedom struggle. And it's close to what I try to do in my work about New Jersey and other historians writing about the Northeast, obviously, looking at Philadelphia and other parts of the region, this particular region of the country, that most of the work, I I think what you also state, you also talk about in the intro, much of the work is focused on the South and uh, what was happening in Southern states. But you have the freedom struggle beginning probably before in Northeastern states like Boston, Philadelphia, and Newark, New Jersey. In order to tell this story, we're talking about the archives before we started and visiting the archives, but what type of evidence that you use in terms of primary sources, oral histories, archival, what different archival collections and things of that nature mm-hmm. were used to, to get this story told? Well, yeah, I sort of always noted that the, again, trying to find that elusive narrative, I always noted that the true story about a lot of this stuff in Boston was an oral tradition story. Mm. <laughs> it was told, that's how I heard it, told and retold so many different spaces and not ever completely meetings or community meetings, barbershops could be really, truly like spaces like that, conversation someone's stoop or outside at the park or various things. And I kept hearing snippets that were important, but never the full story. And that was frustrating to me because I'm like, I got to piece this together and use the cues of the oral history that I was hearing and corroborate the evidence pretty much and fill in the blanks. That's really, that was really how I looked 
I mean, I guess in hindsight, that's how I could see it now. But at the time, I just was trying to to figure it all out because I'm like, I guess with the training at UMass and every, especially at UMass, your ears are hearing the same information, but it's hitting these different cues around different important themes in the field of Black studies and African-American history and in the story of African-Americans, you know, like... I'm like, oh, wow. The more I learn about Boston's story, it's not unlike, it's not so different from the heroic kind of civil rights narrative that we're more familiar with in the South. But of course, the problem in the, with this the history in the cities that you're mentioning, for example, Newark, Philadelphia, and, and Boston and other places, is always that myth-making that happens in the North that says, oh, we're somehow separate or or better than the South. We don't have those race problems. And indeed, they are more elusive. They're not as, everything's not sort of as in your face. So it's more dug in deep. And so you really have to dig to find it. So I figured, okay, well, it's already an oral history. Let me get that history down, recorded with as many interviews as I possibly can do. And also there were other people doing some of this work as well. So one was not completely alone in this, and that was exciting. And so people would, for an an oral history interview that I didn't have, maybe someone else had done it, and we would exchange information. And also realizing I couldn't interview everybody, there were already some of these things in some of the archives. I'm thinking specifically that Suffolk University has an amazing oral history archive of school desegregation years. They interviewed a lot of people. Eyes on the Prize of course, had a whole episode dedicated or half of an episode dedicated to the story in Boston. And so there's always been important interviews in the Eyes on the Prize collection that were just stunning, you know, stuff that didn't make it into the episode that's on the cutting room floor. And oral uh, history interviews that they have that's at uh, Wash U in St. Louis. That's kind of how I started. And then later to find some of the more kind of really lost history of, say, like the left in Boston. This one of the chapters talks a lot about some organizing, leftist organizing, and, and some of the work of Eugene Gordon and other journalists, and telling the story of Boston's kind of like these small accomplishments in the 1930s, 40s, and, and 50s in the midst of the Cold War, in the wake of the Great Depression and that kind of thing. There's a big focus on economics. And all of that stuff was in the Boston Public Library, to tell you the truth, <laughs> because they have a tremendous newspaper collection there and some of the black newspapers. But then a lot of the, um, yeah, mainly the, the two major black newspapers at the time, the, the, the Boston Guardian, which was, of course, the newspaper of William Monroe Trotter. And the Courier, which was another important uh, newspaper, it was several actually. They have a great collection, the Boston Public Library. So, BU has the Trotter Papers and the ML and Martin Luther King Papers. UMass has a very good collection. Every library in Boston seems to have a little piece of some of this in their archives, and so it just became a matter. And of course, Harvard Schlesinger Library became a matter of sure. making the trips to Boston. <laughs> you were well positioned for this research, right? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Me. <laughs> yes, yeah. No, I think you go through a lot of different types of sources, and that's good for our students listening, too, in terms of how you put together a story, newspapers, oral histories, archives, and even just having this memory of 
being told these stories and then trying to document and write them down and take these oral history interviews, which is a lot of work. Oral history, and I have great respect for people who do local history because it's often scattered across so many different sections of a particular location. I mean, local history is very hard to do. It's very hard to do. It's, you know, folks say, oh, local history, but it's extremely hard to do. And I have a lot of respect for anyone who does it. So appreciate you taking us across all these different sources and materials and and where we can find them. And I can even share some links to some of these resources with people in the show notes once we release this particular episode. But in the beginning part of the book, I think you even opened with this discussion 1972. And someone a few days ago was asking, hey, so what is the Trotter going to do to commemorate the 50 years of the Boston busing incident? And at the same time, I had picked up your book. And that was one of the first things you're arguing is about 72 versus 1974. (laughs) And this person's memory said, oh, 74. I remember 74. We got to do something for the 50 years. So that point in your book. Talk about that to us a little bit. Why why is 72, you know, seemingly more important than 74? Yeah, I guess that's kind of like a somewhat obvious way of, or maybe not so much, but of trying to, again, signal turning the needle a little bit more back to the Black freedom struggle that made this come mm-hmm. about in the first place. Nobody ever, not ever, but very few people connect school desegregation or busing as it's often called. And, and that in and of itself really says a lot. Who calls it busing versus who calls school desegregation? It's also politicized and so with so much emotion wrapped in it that it obscures the, you know, people from looking at it, I guess, in any kind of positive way to begin with. I mean, there's that part. Busing is tough memory for people in Boston. It's, it's not seen. It's just always going to have that element to it because it connects with people's, you know, people's lives and people were, are still, you know, still affected by it and remember it. So because of that, you have even a lot of people who were part of the Black Freedom Movement in Boston who themselves feel like, oh, busing didn't work. And they have doubts about whether, whether that the effectiveness of the, of that strategy. So there's uh, all kinds of disagreement, but kind of trying to find some glint of hope in in all of this, does you know, Boston has to think about what kind of legacy it wants to have and what kind of city it wants to be seen as. And so I, tr- I talked about that also in the beginning, the city upon a hill idea. Right. is It's very similar and very close. There's all these parallels and narratives to American history. You know, for every, this is a corollary for almost every, every piece of it. So, you know, Boston, Boston want to stay in that direction toward of hate segregation, separation, and bitterness, or move to a new day of a better understanding and a more open city and a more vibrant place. And in the end, even though it got dragged through it, Boston really does opt to become that kind of city, a more open city, a more open place. It's been financially successful, that's for sure. I would go as far to say that a lot of its success as a place as a favorite place for so many people and as a successful sort of municipality and metropolis in the 21st century has to do with Boston's solving its racial problem. And that was a gift brought to you by the Black Freedom Struggle <laughs> that may have felt like it was foisted upon the city 
but it was strong medicine to in a, in a place that belief in equality is talked about, but was not practiced at all. And right. it was this sort of dirty secret that shocked a lot of Americans when the violence that accompanied busing was sort of all over the television and, and all over the uh, media. I think that was shocking to people because people have a, a sense about Boston in their mind of what it's supposed to be. And so yeah. there's a lot of people that really, they couldn't care too, too much probably about how Boston's seen because that's the other part of it. It's somewhat parochial in that sense and shut off from the rest of America, almost like it's not part of the rest of America in some way. Mm. And also, so that's another thing that, that, that has to, that has changed in Boston. And like, like America, you know, the movement for civil rights and equality made the city better. Yeah, and I think one of the driving themes, obviously, or the thrust of the book is really the argument that the the Black freedom struggle flows through the city of Boston, even when you think about the cast of characters that are associated with the freedom struggle. Malcolm X comes through Boston, right? Living there in the formative years that are shaping him the most, you could argue. Yeah. It's happening here with his sister in Boston, Martin Luther King, formative years, Mm -hmm. same thing, meeting Coretta, being a student in the city and preaching like those are flows through Boston. The black freedom struggle is, is a kind of is the current that runs through this, this narrative that I think is so important for, for people listening to get. And the point that you make about historical memory we want to think of Boston as the cradle of liberty and the revolution. And so many people come there for their tourism to see these, you know, mm-hmm. artifacts of American history. But there's also this other story and using this phrase busing to suggest that, well, there was just one problem we had and we fixed it. <laughs> Besides the fact that it was like, I think your argument you were making earlier is that it was really a sundown city. Yeah. We don't like to think of our cities. We think of our towns and that means South and that means rural. That's it. But it was really a sundown city. It really was. And we don't want to accept that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There was that, that sort of denial. That was a strategy that, that kind of hit it, hit him where it hurt, you know, <laughs> comparing the fair city of Boston to sort of Southern spaces was a sort of strategy in a way that that I think was actually effective. And again, see, all of this would only come out in the archives, you know, because looking closely at some of the documents, looking, having had a chance to look at, you know, minutes or proceedings from some of these meetings with the Boston School Committee, and then going back and reading people's recollections of the experience and comparing that with the scattered, you know, few documents that are, that were out there, that are out there. I could think of several instances of that. I think that's where you get, the, you know, when people were saying this is Boston, not Birmingham, that was something coming from the city fathers and mothers of Boston who were white and who tried to defend Boston from that accusation. And in fact, that was the Louise de Hicks, who was the president of the school committee at the time, that was the stopping point from them getting anything accomplished, supposedly, was because the black organizers who were you know, pushing for these changes refused to change their accusation that this was segregation. They said, as, as long as you keep using that word segregation, like we will not do this. And so they were very sensitive about being compared to the South. But, mm-hmm. and yet in every single 
thing that they were doing was complete. They, they were just like almost exactly like those, those Southern segregationists in their tactics, mannerisms, and, and general approach. The archives <laughs> make that clear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so important to, it's making me think about this stuff that I came across in the archives on Asbury Park and these letters that were being written to the mayor you know, who are these people tearing our lovely city by the shore apart <laughs> right. and saying all these bad things? We're not bad people. You know, yeah. it's the kind of thing you find in the archives with these letters to the editor, you know, the newspapers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's important, you know. Then as a historian, you know, you can make up your mind like I've seen enough or heard enough of this kind of testimonials and on, on either in either way to say, okay, I'm not out on a limb to suggest that this was true or that was true. Right. And the different sources that you use to kind of substantiate a particular perspective. Also, in 74, so 76, Boston is a major tourist center for schools and just everyday citizens coming into the city to see the history <laughs> of the nation. <laughs> and made me think about what the 200th anniversary of the U.S., is happening in 76. So it's really close, you know, in terms of dates. And it's at that time that the tourism industry is starting to really boom in the region. So down to the present, this concern about what Boston looks like and embracing the idea of it as the cradle of liberty, right? That that gets tarnished if you start to talk about gentrification, mm -hmm. segregation, sundown city, right? Absolutely. So there's this concern with tied to money, Right. The capitalist imperative, tourism. That's right. Yeah, folks are not going to want to come here if we can't sell them a dream <laughs> or Disneyland. <laughs> that's true. You know, I didn't really thought about that. Yeah. The bicentennial in 76. That's true. Yeah. So with each those two year passages, 72, 74, 76. Yeah. That's that's interesting. It's like, yeah, exactly. There's a, this this major celebration and with Boston sort of at the heart of it without a trace of irony at all about, you know, kind of what's happening within the city and the major sort of inability to reach the goals of the spirit of 76, you know, 1776, the revolution itself. I think that alone, people notice that. And that's something you gain, again, from doing oral history. If you hear something over and over again, people who came to Boston who didn't grow up there, and there are plenty of people in that category because a lot of people came for college and then stayed and became part, you know, are like legendary parts of the black, you know, leadership structure there even to this day, but who are actually from New York originally or from other places. But they went to usually go there for college and then end up liking it so much and they stay. But you hear over and over again, people are like, oh, I was so surprised to see Boston, this the place you think when you think of the New England schoolhouse, you know, and that's you just think you would just assume. Well, Boston has these great schools and is doing everything they can to educate every mind, you know, and throw in with that Boston's abolitionist legacy, which has probably been what I found in my research is that's been made. That's also a myth in a sense too, you know. There's been so much made about Boston's kind of passion and and strength around anti-slavery, but it's not, doesn't reflect every single Bostonian. Like not everybody, you know, just because Boston's the headquarters of abolitionism doesn't mean that everybody in Boston is an abolitionist. Right. You know, sure. 
And that was kind of like, oh, okay. So it's just this layering of different myths. Boston become, is so many things. It's a very pl- hard place, if I may say, to write a history about because mm. it's an intellectual space too because you have the institutes of higher learning there, the formative parts of American kind of education. The first first public high school in America is in Boston. You know, <laughs> The first... Right. American College, Harvard, the high school being Boston Latin. It's it's an intellectual space. So it's hard to um hard to write about it without probably offending somebody, any you know, out there. Sure. Yeah. Is a Boston of the mind. You know, but I just but I thought, okay, go back, let's go back to nineteen seventy two because that to me is the mm-hmm. year that a concerned group of citizens did something about the direction that Boston was taking, mainly in the 20th century, by the way, you know, mm. Boston has its, has a better past in a sense on racial issues in the 19th century than it does in the 20th century. And then 72 is the year that people stood up and did something about it that created a uh, court order that was apparently so all encompassing wide ranging and powerful in its implementation that it really does transform the city. It really does. Yeah. So that's the point of the start. You know, this is where you get the action happening in 72 as a, is a a good point about where we think about chronology. I think it's a good point to, to, to be made, especially for any students listening to this program as we wrap things up, Zeb, tell us, you know, you sort of end the book talking about why, why we should think about Boston and not Birmingham. You're going to get some folks mad with that phrase, <laughs> Boston and not Birmingham as the, the second reconstruction. Folks that, that study the, the Southern movement probably <laughs> made them a little upset with that. But, yeah. but as we end with that question, why should we think of Boston, not Birmingham? Yeah, yeah. I'm appreciative for the chance to try to clarify that a little bit because again that you know in in stating that it's that was something that was often stated by the uh, forces of you know the anti-busing and school desegregation you know anti-school desegregation folks uh the the very ones who who were involved in maintaining these separate school system that Boston is basically found guilty of of doing and so when they say so a bit out of context i suppose but i think somewhere in the chapter uh it explains that they're the ones saying we're Boston not Birmingham and and they're saying that with some kind of false pride about Boston's mm. exceptionalism to that kind of racism that in their minds was something associated with the South and not not Boston, Massachusetts. So it's it's really meant to be, um, from my perspective, I'm trying to say that it's that Boston is tied to places like Birmingham, not as unlike as we have been led to believe. Oh. And I talk about some of the similarities between the, the Birmingham campaign actually the children's crusade, the children's campaign of using, of you know, it's very similar to Boston in that sense. Because a lot of times people compare Boston to Little Rock, what, you know, with school desegregation. And that's certainly the case in a sort of literal sense. But in terms of the turmoil and the violence, to me, it, it channels more so what, what took place in Birmingham. So it's not meant to, definitely not meant to be 
dismissal at all. Sure. Um, it's it's more the the contrary, and so probably should have been in quotes because, and I think it was, but sometimes these things get, you know, <laughs> sort of left up. That Boston, not Birmingham. That's interesting. That's in that's 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 see that's that's a good readerly kind of comment because it you never know how you, sometimes how things are going to be interpreted. But no, 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 Birmingham. No, that's the second Reconstruction, and that part of it is is meant to evoke a continuation of that project of Reconstruction. Because when we talk about Reconstruction, we think of the South, and I'm trying to say right. that Boston was an unreconstructed space itself, going back to mm. the before before the Southern stuff. And I make that argument also in the book Early. earlier in sure. the book. Yeah, like like like. The fact that separate but equal is a idea that comes from Boston itself. It's, it's not just from the South. The South borrows a lot of more ideas from the North than we often talk about. No, I think that's well, really well said for us to make those connections and link and different links to New Jersey and Philadelphia too. Very making that argument. Those of us who were looking at civil rights movement, northeastern United States or in the North. Mm-hmm have been telling folks who study the South, no, these, these things are connected. We're, it's not either or, right? Where was it worse? It's saying that this was a national problem and, you know, why we look at these northern cities. But Zeb, thank you so much for, for joining us today to talk about your, I think, very important book, Before Busing, A History of Boston's Long Black Freedom Struggle. Hopefully everybody will go out and get a copy of this important book about the long black freedom struggle in Boston. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to talk about the book. 